You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. As we continue in the Sermon on the Mount under the teaching of Jesus Christ, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right hand causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me keep that one page team. Oh, no, I've got it right here. Good, thanks. All right, uh, remain standing for one moment, please. Um, I'll dismiss Redemption Hill kids here in one moment. But this is what we confess. Our, our kids ages 5 to 9 are continuing to learn about um, what it means to be redeemed by Christ. And here's going to be the question. Here's the deal with the answer. It's long. So if you just want to follow along with your ears and your eyes, that's fine. If you want to verbalize with me, that's cool as well. I'm just acknowledging on the front end. It's long. There's a lot of good theology here. It's basically Romans 8. <laughs> That's what we got going on here. So here's, here's the question from, our new city, from the New City Catechism and then the answer from our confession of, pe- confession of faith. Excuse me. Are all people, is the question, are all people, just as they were lost through Adam, saved through Christ? That's the question. Is everyone saved? Is there a limit to who is saved? That's what's going on here. That's the question. Here is the answer. As God has appointed the elect to glory, so he has by the eternal and most free purpose of his will foreordained all the means to it. This is also Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, all of Romans 8. As a result, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, effectually called to faith in Christ by his Spirit, working in due season, as Romans 8, the end, justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by him by his power through faith to salvation. Neither are any others redeemed by Christ. For, effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but only the elect. That's good theology. That's good stuff. Uh, Redemption Hill kids, you may be dismissed. Uh, Miss Layla is teaching the five to nine. Miss Erica, uh, the younger kids, two to four. You may be, may be seated. Uh, just one note, one, one of my things, uh, one of the reasons why I love our confession of faith is because of the theology. It's just biblical. <laughs> it's just, we're just going to the Bible and we're just saying, what does the Bible say about any given topic in particular? What does it mean to be redeemed? So everything that I read here from our confession of faith, you know, words like justified, adopted, and in our kids this morning, they're in particular going to be focusing on adoption, sanctified. That's all biblical language. So we're not just making this up and pulling it out of thin air. We're just looking to God's word. All right, obviously we have kids' totes in the hallway for kids that might be staying in this morning. All right, we're at sermon number 17 in our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. 
It's number 17 of at least 30, by my count so far, 30 sermons. I've been toying with the idea of slowing down when we get to the Lord's Prayer, and maybe just taking that very slowly, and I also want to do a sermon on the kingdom of heaven, but we'll see how this continues to unfold. I have a general plan, but obviously God does things in the midst of a plan, so um, we'll see how it goes. Might get to 40, who knows. Today's sermon, and the sermon two weeks from now, might be the two most sensitive topics that Jesus addresses in the Sermon on the Mount. They are topics that touch everybody, everybody, either directly or indirectly. Matthew 5, verses 27 to 30, which Dean read, is about adultery and lust. And two weeks from now, we'll look at the topic of adultery and divorce. That's from Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32. And just so you know, next week we'll take a break because we'll have a baptism Sunday and I'll preach on, on baptism. But before I pray, I, I want you to know that I will be preaching to the fellas, in particular, the husbands. Um, and I got to say that it is only in God's providence that I'm preaching this message on Father's Day. Like, I don't preach Father's Day and Mother's Day messages. It's not how I roll. I got reasons for that. And the story is, is yesterday I was buttoning up my sermon and it just kind of occurred to me, tomorrow's Father's Day, and I've, I've written a message where I realized that the context of this passage is directed toward husbands and fathers. Husbands in particular, right? But I want to tell you why I think that's the primary focus of the sermon, right? And I'm not just doing it because, hey, it's Father's Day. First, the context of our passage is between a married man and a married woman, right? When Jesus preached this sermon, he is effectively calling all the husbands to the carpet. <laughs> and for good reason. So I'm just being faithful to the context here. Second, focusing on lustful intent of a husband will show us how far gone our culture is from a biblical view of marriage. As I will explain uh, in a moment here, when you move away from God's ordained ways of marriage and family, the consequences are far and wide. And yes, women are also grossly affected. In particular, wives, right? Third reason why I'm focusing on guys. I'm a dude, right? I'm a dude. I'm a guy. I've taken the words of Christ from Matthew 5, verses 27 to 30 to heart. And after the Lord saved me in my early 20s, I was really confronted with this particular passage. And I'll get to that a little bit later in my sermon. Fourth reason. Men and women were created equal by God, but they're also different. Right? Go to Genesis 1, 26, 27. Created in God's image and his likeness, men and women. But men and women are also different. One of the differences we see historically in, in soci, you know, think sociological terms is that guys are more attracted to the physical in a woman. This concept does go both ways, right? But there's a reason why the, the perversion of sex is primarily directed toward men in our culture. On balance, there are more unsavory and sinful institutions directed toward men. It's true. When Jesus tells the husband to gouge out his eye and cut off his hand, I can't help but think 
that Jesus is on to something because it is the eye and the hand which a man is attracted to, right? What he sees and what he touches. So guys, buckle up and happy Father's Day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, indeed I need your help, but this is your word. And you have spoken clearly and authoritatively through your word. And Lord, I pray for soft hearts this morning. I pray for a pastoral tone, Lord. And my primary prayer for myself, Lord, as I preach is to be faithful to what you've already said. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Every June, from now until Jesus returns, Christians are forced to talk about sexuality. Some apps on your phone have been updated to display a rainbow. I've actually, this is very petty, I know, but I've refused to update certain apps on my phone because the update is basically a rainbow, right? I know it's petty. It's my little win. Whatever. TV streaming outlets highlight shows and movies that involve the LGBTQ plus community. I know there's more letters. I can't keep up. Stores like Target dedicate an entire section toward pride. And of course, pride parades take place all across the country. What do we see in these pride parades? Families watch people barely dressed in clothes go down a street. This kind of scene would have been rated R 20, minute, 20 years ago. Families watch parade participants doing things that would have been rated X 20 years ago. Dressing in drag has become normalized. And yes, they are coming after our children. It's true. Meanwhile, those who do not adhere to an LGBTQ plus ideology are watching porn. Men are giving women in yoga pants a second look. Dudes wear, and I know this because I know people who do this, Dudes wear sunglasses, yes, to block out the sun, but to also allow their eyes to follow the woman running down the boulevard. The supposed faithful church-going husband all of a sudden is committing adultery with his coworker. What we are witnessing in our culture is a complete dismantling of God's design for sex, marriage, and the family. The dismantling's been going on for a while, but the train seems to be picking up steam. As God's design for sexuality is being dismantled inside and outside the church, we've become numb. I think, generally speaking, we've become numb to the beauty of sex and marriage between a man and a woman. Here's an example. Uh, historically, the Powers family and uh, my in-laws love to pick apples in the fall, right? You go to the orchard, you, gr- you get the bushels of apples, you take them home, and everyone has their favorite kind of apple. You bite into that first apple, and what do you, you taste every sugar in that apple, that bright red apple. You eat the second apple, and it's equally delicious, right? And then one week later, 20 apples or 30 apples into it, You've become numb. (laughs) You forget where the apple came from, right? You don't taste the sugars like you used to. 
All your senses seem to be numb to the apple. You know, the church needs to reclaim the beauty of sex in marriage. The way to revitalize yourself from the numbness is to fight for your marriage. It's for husbands to fight for purity and faithfulness to their wife. Listen, I'm not saying that there was not a sense of numbness to sex in the first century, right? There was, which is why Jesus preached this particular topic in the Sermon on the Mount. But there is a, seems to be a sense now more than ever that God's design for man, woman, marriage, and sex is no longer respected. Husbands are no longer fighting for their purity of heart and faithfulness to their wives. It's like they've given up. Let's take it from another angle. If you believe God's design for sex is the only way, right, we'll be prepared for criticism. However, if you want to flourish to the glory of God, God's way of understanding sex and marriage is vital. Been talking a lot about that. What does it mean to flourish? Well, dudes, guys, fellas, husbands, got a text for you. Now more than ever, the words of Christ from Matthew 5, 27 to 30 are relevant. The devil loves any cultural force that divides a husband from a wife and in turn tears down the family. It is entirely appropriate to point out the cultural influences in and outside the church, right? Like I said, you can't run from Pride Month anymore, right? We used to be able to shield ourselves and our kids from that. But you can't. You try. It's tough. Access to inappropriate content has never been more available. Y'all got a smartphone in your pocket. Marriage has never been more undervalued in our culture. It's so easy just to give up. The age of men and women getting married is rising rapidly, in part because careers are more important than the family. Not against careers, not against women having careers. That's part of the reality of what's going on here. Divorce rates are through the roof, and I know there are divorced folks in this room, right? You've experienced the hardship of being married and then divorced. Children are now a barrier to a person seeking professional growth when they should be viewed as a blessing. I don't think it's difficult to diagnose the problems we are witnessing in our culture and in the church. I don't think that's difficult. It's obvious why we are where we're at today. But here's what I've learned over the years. It is no good Dudes, it is no good to rail against the cultural forces if you're unwilling to turn the finger in upon yourself. Like Sean Powers can write a, a really strong blog against the LGBTQ2 plus community, excuse me, right? That's, but that's no good if I can't look at myself and my own heart first. And I got a lot to say about those cultural forces. I do. I've got opinions, as many of you are well aware. Husbands, do you want to know the best way to fight against the sadistic sexual forces in the culture? Get your house in order. Get your house in order. Parents, rightly protect your kids from the ungodly predations of the sexualized culture. Actually, now more than ever, as they're even younger, you've got to coach them through it. 
Because they're seeing it. They're talking to friends all the time. Husbands, cherish your wife more than anything other than Jesus. Wives, respect your husband more than anyone other than Jesus. Parents, model to your children with all the warts that you have, right? But model for them what it means to love like Christ in the context of your marriage. Show them what it means to be faithful. The fact is that there have always been cultural forces pushing back against God's grand design for sex and marriage. What do we see in Genesis 3, right? We go all the way back to Genesis 3. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve lived the good life, literally because God made everything good. That's the definition of the good life right there. But then the serpent enters the picture. And I wonder if you've ever noticed that one of the tactics the sermon uses against Adam and Eve is to divide them. The serpent initially tricks Eve, lies to Eve, while Adam stands by. I surmise Adam knew what was going on. He just shucked his responsibilities. And then Adam does take the fruit from Eve. And then what do we read in Genesis 3? It's this exchange between God and Adam. God says, Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Like, God doesn't know, right? He knows. But it's the response of of Adam that I want to focus in on. The man said, Adam said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So Adam blames God for giving him Eve, and then he blames Eve for giving him the apple. It's one of the problems we have in our culture, in the church in particular. Husbands are unwilling to take responsibility for their actions. We're always pushing the blame onto someone else. Sin is so destructive The devil delights to see marriages divided, and the devil certainly delights to see division by adultery. The question is, what are you doing to fight sin and pursue faithfulness? Again, don't complain to me about the LGBTQ plus movement when your wicked heart is seeking out personal pleasure at a bunch of other horrible places. So Jesus is unafraid, once again, of making a beeline right to your heart, in my heart, right? As we saw last week, Jesus needs to correct the pharisaical reading of the Old Testament. Uh, The Pharisees were concerned with the outward appearance, but Jesus knew there was more to adultery. Get used to this pattern. Jesus corrects the record in verses 27, 28. You have heard that it is said, you should not commit adultery. Right? Going back to the Ten Commandments. But Jesus says, but I say to you. Now the question I have is this. Regarding adultery, do we see pharisaical teachings of the Old Testament law in our day? Right? Do we have a bunch of Pharisees walking around, preaching the same thing? And I say, Absolutely. Perhaps Protestant pastors are not teaching contrary to Jesus, but functionally something else is going on. Let me say it a little differently. And I think this is what Jesus is driving at. If the barometer of your faithfulness to God and your wife is to not cheat on your spouse, then you are a Pharisee. If that's the barometer, you're a Pharisee. 
So what does Jesus say to you in verse 28? That everyone who looks at a woman, that word gune also means wife, looks at a woman with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I mean, go ahead and test verse 28 against your heart. Do you want to live distinctly before God? Test and apply verse 28, right? Here's one of the challenges from Jesus. There are genuine moments when physical adultery does takes place, right? When a spouse commits adultery, there are conscious steps taking place. You do not go from the living room to the motel room without getting into the car. The Pharisees were good about hiding the car keys from themselves so they wouldn't be tempted. <laughs> like, how do I not commit adultery? Well, you could just hide, hide the car keys. They were part of an accountability group where they had dudes on speed dial, right? Like Pharisee John's on speed dial one, Pharisee Bob's on speed dial two. And all these guardrails were in place to ensure that moments of adultery did not occur. And I'm not going to argue against some of the guardrails. I'm not. But what does Jesus say? It's not enough to not get in the car. You can, you can commit adultery with your spouse, against your spouse, while you're sitting in the same room. Your spouse might not know it, but you know it, and the Lord knows it. It is worth noting that Jesus addresses two dynamics in Matthew 5, verse 27 to 30. First, he's obviously addressing marriage. You can't commit adultery if you're not married, right? Jesus is not letting single people off the hook per se, but he's focusing on an institution that he ordained in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. I know that not all people get married. The Apostle Paul did not get married. Paul called singleness a gift, and faithfully stewarding the gift of singleness also means rooting out lust in the heart. But these facts do not lessen the value of marriage and family. For example, up until 30 seconds ago, procreation between a husband and wife was the only way to have children, right? The natural way. But now we have people who say men can get pregnant. God designed a man and a woman to get married, have children, and for the man and the woman to be faithful to one another until one of them dies. Like the equation is actually that simple. So marriage is a big deal to God. That's one of the dynamics going on in this passage. The second dynamic worth addressing is that Jesus specifically addresses the heart of man, the dude, the guy, the person with the XY chromosome. Jesus is not saying that a woman or wife won't battle lust in her heart or not commit adultery, right? We all have heard of stories where a married man commits adultery with a married woman, for example. But Jesus is saying that when the husband is godly and pursues faithfulness, he protects his heart and also the heart of his wife. I mean, I hate to break it to all feminists, but Jesus shows us the importance of the patriarchy. He does. He's addressing the husband, the dude. And for good reason. 
Jesus wants families to have a husband who strives to take sin seriously by battling lust in the heart and being faithful to his wife. What kind of assurance does a wife receive when she knows her husband is faithful to her? I would suppose a tremendous amount of assurance in their marriage. I know that in recent years, it is not just men who have battled lust and porn, right? The stats about women fighting these sins have been exponential, like a SpaceX rocket going to space, right? Women have become increasingly addicted to unsavory and sinful habits. Like that, those stats are really clear. The question I have is why? Why is that the case? A lot of reasons why for sure. But why the sudden change? Over the course of 70-ish years, there has been a movement to, quote, free women from a husband in the home. That's what you ladies need. You need to be free from your husband in the home. 70-ish years. And there are philosophical underpinnings that precede the sexual revolution of the 60s by hundreds of years. But I would like to suggest another reason why women have been sucked into sinful addictions. How about it's because men have stopped being godly men. Just like Adam in the garden. Right? He didn't take responsibility. He did not protect Eve. Happy Father's Day. Yay. <laughs> Lust in the heart of men has caused an epidemic to take place in men and women. How is a wife going to feel safe and secure in her marriage when the husband is constantly objectifying other women? In 2001, Forbes magazine estimated that the worldwide profits from the porn industry were $56 billion. It's 2001, right? 2021, profits increased to almost $100 billion. That's 2012, and the profit margin has, has remained steady since. Like billion. Billion. Like, I know that we're used to the word trillion these days, but billion's still a lot of money. But we also know that a dude doesn't need to have a screen to lust. He just needs to walk around the mall. So here's the question that has been running through this sermon series. And I'm asking every man sitting in this room, do you want to live distinctly for Christ? Do you want to live distinctly for Christ? If the answer is yes, fight lust. And if you're married, pursue your spouse. If we take a closer look at verse 28, we see that lustful intent can be translated more accurately as desire. More times than not, the Greek word here is translated as desire. The lust for another person is born out of desire. And where do your desires reside? Your heart. Your heart is the epicenter of your desires, men and women. Now, you need to know that not all desires are necessarily evil. The question is, what do you desire? You can have godly desires or fleshly desires. Take a close look at Galatians 5.17. Kind of makes this distinction really clear. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. 
So there's fleshly desires and spiritual desires. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. And those are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. How does Galatians 5.17 apply to Matthew 5.28? Easy. You can have godly and spiritual, a spiritual desire for your wife, or you can have fleshly and sinful desires for someone who is not your wife. When you do the latter, you commit adultery. The Old Testament gives another name to sinful desires. It's called covet. I don't know if you noticed, but several of the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20 speak about the family. The fourth commandment is for children to honor their father and mother. The sixth commandment is adultery. And then the tenth commandment doubles down on how the husband treats his wife. We read in Exodus 20, 17, you should not covet your neighbor's house. You should not covet your neighbor's wife. Like God's doubling down on how men treat their spouse, their wife, in the Ten Commandments. I mean, I hope the picture is clear. Coveting, sinful desires, and lustful intent are all warnings in particular for men. Therefore, the goal for you dudes is to cultivate spiritual desires and militate against the sinful. Like I use the word militate very intentionally. You're at war against the fleshly desires. Perhaps eight to ten years ago, I was working out at a fitness center in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. That's where we used to live. And um, the fitness center had a bunch of TVs where the free weights were. And then I'm working out, and all of a sudden, on every TV, it's the same programming. And it was a program of uh, the Minnesota Vikings cheerleaders. And I know my wicked heart. And so I text Charisse. And all I said to her in this text was, hey, this is what's going on. When you pick me up, she was going to pick me up that day, ask me how my heart's doing. And I knew that when I asked her that question, she would ask me how my heart was doing. I'm not trying to come across as pious with that story. I mean, I fight sin just like you all. But we do see from our Lord the importance of militating against sexual morality in the heart. In the heart. What does Jesus suggest about militating against sinful desires, in particular lust? Well, Jesus has a few thoughts for us. And it's not just sending your wife a text message. Let's reread these aggressive words from Jesus about fighting lust. These are really aggressive words. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. How many of you have talked to your friend like that lately? Can I get a hand? No, didn't think so. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Jesus is constantly talking about hell in the Sermon on the Mount. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. He repeats this, for it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Like there's a pattern in verses 29 and 30. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your entire body to go into hell. I mean, imagine if we talked like that to each other. I tend to think 
People in this generation would not be pleased if we spoke to each other about lust and adultery, just as Jesus addressed it. But maybe we should. Jesus brings the heat because of what's at stake. What's at stake? Faithfulness to God. Faithfulness to your wife, husbands. We should not be shocked that immediately following this teaching on adultery, Jesus needs to address divorce. And like I said, we'll cover that in two weeks, but you see how they're connected, deeply connected. Jesus wants you to have a healthy marriage, and it might take drastic measures for you to fight for a healthy marriage. What does Jesus say? If you're right, I causes you to sin, take it out. I mean, allow the metaphorical picture to settle on your hearts, fellas. How would you gouge out your eye? Like, what tool would you use? I mean, I know it's graphic, but that's kind of the point. Guys, your faithfulness to your wife is so important that the thought of being unfaithful, you know, right? The thought of being unfaithful stops you in your tracks because of, what you'll need to do, <laughs> gouge out your eye. And hopefully the picture does stop you from being unfaithful. And the same with, with your right hand. The thought of grabbing like a circular saw and putting it against your wrist should stop you in your tracks. The reason why Jesus mentions the right eye and right hand is that it was thought in the first century that the most valuable part of your body was the right, right? Most people were right-handed. Like, you lop off Sean's right hand, I'm relatively useless. <laughs> so on the one hand, there are specific, specific steps you can take to protect yourself from lust, from sexual sin. Go ahead and put the Covenant Eyes app on your phone. Go ahead. I'm all for it. Find friends in church who keep you accountable. You know, in our community groups, we separate into men's and women's group for a reason because hopefully there are friends in there who love you so much who will hold you accountable. I think the Apostle Paul gives us wisdom from 1 Corinthians 6 about fighting lust. What does he say? Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from it. Now, flee is a verb we can take to heart. When you are tempted, you grab your running shoes, you put them on, and you run away as fast as you can. Run as if your life and your marriage depend upon it. But here's the deal with all those protective steps, right? The protective steps you take must drive you back to the heart. It is in the heart that you find Christ at work in your life. Until the heart is dealt with, until desires for faithfulness is greater than your unfaithfulness, right? You will struggle. Here's why it is so essential to deal with the heart. As most of you know, I did not grow up in a Christian home. My parents did embrace the sexual revolution of the 1960s. And their parenting principles were reflected in that. I mean, my college speech, and I'm... Uh, um, what do I say? Refracting this a little bit. Um, redacting, excuse me, that was the word. My college speech was making sure I didn't get someone else pregnant. That was my college speech. Right? Before knowing Christ, I lived a life of downright debauchery. My addictions were many. If this were an adults-only message, perhaps I would show more detail, but just try to keep things PG. 
but I think you get the point. After the Holy Spirit regenerated my cold, dead heart and breathed life onto me, I began to think about what it looks like to live for God, right? I knew that the first step was to move out of the place I was living. I had an amicable relationship with my roommate, but I knew, to, knew that I needed to move out with her, right? I also knew that I needed to be influenced by Christian men. At first, I thought most Christian dudes were weird. Um, might be some truth to that. But I looked past their weirdness, so I moved in with a couple guys. And then I put the Covenant Eyes app on my phone. I did all that. All these steps were an attempt to break addictions, sexual addictions. They were necessary steps. But here's what I eventually realized. This is really important. Any barrier you put in place can be circumvented. Sin can find a way to get past the Covenant Eyes app. The primary way to break lustful addictions is complete surrender to Jesus from the heart. You've got to surrender to Jesus. Only when you surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ will you find freedom in your heart. Yes, the battle for living the holy life continues, but your only hope to win is to, is to, is to fight and realize that your fight is with Christ because you're in Christ. Now, I want to acknowledge that, again, this is a heavy topic, and I know that I've been pointing the finger at the fellows, the dudes. That's intentional. While I do not want to dismiss you ladies, I hope you see how faithful men who follow Jesus are faithful men who love and serve their wives well. Men who faithfully follow Christ fight against lust. They fight against objectifying women. They fight for their purity. And they fight for the purity of their wife. So the teaching of Christ is evident. I do not obfuscate the words of our Lord. Remember, Christ is calling you, Christian, to be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees, right? That was Matthew 5, verse 20. Christ isn't only calling you to keep your hands off another woman. He is calling you to repentance in the heart. Jesus is calling you to repent of your sinful lusts. Men, God is calling you to have a vision for your wife that includes faithfulness. Like when you think about your marriage, what are some, way, what are some filters in which you can process what it means to be married to this woman? Faithfulness. Let's start there. God wants you to know that she is to be valued, loved, protected, and cared for. God wants you to have a biblical view of other women, right? A biblical vision of other women. You need to see that other women are image bearers of God and not someone to be objectified. God wants you to fight for vulnerable women and to not feed the beast of the porn industry. This vision I am selling to myself and what I want to sell to you means walking in holiness before God and before others. Listen, the fight for holiness has never been more difficult, and it's not going to get easier for our children, at least in this regard and under this topic. But the battle for holiness, in particular for sexual purity, will show a broken world the beauty of living for God. I'm convinced of that. I'm absolutely convinced that what we see in the Sermon on the Mount 
in particular today's text, if you walk that out, a broken world and broken people are going to look in and be like, man, that's what redemption looks like. Tell me more. It will show the power of the gospel at work in your life. And I know you're all messy. I'm messy. That's kind of the point, right? Jesus redeems messy people. Perhaps the American church has never been living in a better time to live distinctly. Think about that. The lines between God's ethics for marriage and sexuality could never be more different than what we see in our culture. Like, there are no blurry lines. The lines are actually quite clear. And it's a great challenge and a great opportunity to live distinctly in this world. And I'll end with this thought, and it's a redemptive thought. Remember, the only way for your righteousness to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees is for you to surrender to Christ. Do it over and over and over again. You battling lust, lustful heart, surrender to Christ. You surrender by repenting of your sin, number one. Express your great need for God, number two. And then thank God that he has forgiven you of your sin. Right? Thank God for that. Like, can't stress that enough. We all come here with baggage. You came here with baggage. Sean Powers came here with baggage. We're all a hot mess. But like I said, God delights in redeeming the hot mess. Christian, you have been forgiven of every lustful thought. All y'all. If you're a Christian, you have, been, you have been forgiven of every lustful thought. You have been forgiven of every lustful action. All of it is gone and forgiven. Because why? Because of the blood of Christ. Because, because Christ did something you could not do for yourself. Was to live the perfect and sinless life. And then go to the cross and die. Why did he die? For you. Not only so you can be forgiven and redeemed. But now that you can, you can now walk in a way that honors the one who died for you. Now, God is calling you husbands. God is calling you husbands to walk in the reality of forgiveness and of fighting sin and to faithfully love your wife. That's what God's calling you. Happy Father's Day. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.